HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Sweetgrass Dairy, a second-generation, family-owned creamery. Visit SweetgrassDairy.com to learn more. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome legendary food writer, Claudia Roden. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Claudia about why Mediterranean food is so popular, her new cookbook. Claudia Roden's Mediterranean. And we'll hear Claudia's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. How does one become a culinary legend? Well, you could say there's a recipe for it. First, you make a splash with your first project. Over time, you get more and more people interested in what you're doing. And then you continue to make a lot of whatever it is you make. In Julia's case, that was cooking shows for television and best-selling cookbooks. But volume alone won't cut it. You need to amass a loyal and dedicated following, and you do that by continuing to surprise, delight, and educate your audience with high-quality work. These were all things Julia did well, and that came naturally to her. You could almost say she did them effortlessly, although she certainly worked hard. However, she thoroughly enjoyed the hard work, and the effort was born out of her passion to learn, teach, and share. We've been very spoiled this season to have a succession of legends on the show. Lydia Bastianich joined us in episode 137, followed by Yodam Adelenghi in episode 138. And today, we are joined by food writing legend Claudia Roden. Boasting popularity and longevity rivaling Julia's, Claudia's impact as a food writer has been significant in the UK, the United States, 
well beyond for more than 50 years. At the tender age of 85, after writing more than a dozen award-winning and best-selling cookbooks, Claudia has published yet another, bringing together a lifetime of travel, knowledge, and Mediterranean favorites merged with how she likes to cook at home today. One of the first food writers to compile Middle Eastern recipes into print, Claudia personifies both an international and multicultural identity. Born to Syrian Jewish parents, raised in Cairo, educated in Paris, Claudia came to London in the 1950s to study painting and remained, joined by her family, after Jews were exiled from Egypt after the Suez War. Not the first time Jews were exiled from Egypt, I I realize in saying that. Claudia's internationally best-selling A Book of Middle Eastern Food significantly increased Western interest in the food of the Middle East and North Africa and launched her acclaimed career. It was later followed by her award-winning The Book of Jewish Food, widely recognized as an authoritative work on the culinary history of the global Jewish diaspora. Over the years, she's hosted cooking shows for the BBC and also written books about coffee, picnics, and the food of Spain and Italy. She currently serves as president of the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. For many years, the foundation has made grants to the symposium to support scholarships for student participation. She joins us today to talk about the enduring popularity of the food and flavors of the Mediterranean and her new cookbook, Claudia Roden's Mediterranean Treasured Recipes from a Lifetime of Travel. Welcome to the podcast, Claudia. Thank you so much, Todd, for having me on the show. It's our pleasure. So I'm excited to talk to you about all these things Mediterranean. So, But before we start there, I thought for our listeners, probably some of whom have all your books and some of whom are younger and maybe just being yeah. introduced to you, I thought I would, it would really like to start, because I think it relates to the current work, yeah. with the spark that led you yeah. to become a it's food writer really in the first place. important. I think even here for everybody and for young people in particular. Yeah. So tell us. Yeah. Now, what what did spark your food writing career? I started collecting recipes when Jews, including my family, were leaving Egypt in a hurry in 1956 after the Suez Crisis. That's a long, long time ago. And I'm just thinking the biblical comparison is slightly uncanny with that being, you know, yet another time Jews were leaving Egypt in a hurry with... It was the second exodus from Egypt. (laughs) Yes, that's how we felt it as well. There had been no cookbooks at all in Egypt. Recipes had been passed down the generations from mother to daughter. I believed then that they would be lost forever if they were not recorded. They represented our roots and who we were. Now, as people came, uh, they were asking each other for recipes. Uh, This is something that, to me, was a surprise, because in Egypt we never exchange recipes. Uh, No family would want to give their recipes to another. Um, And yes, but now they were all going to be dispersed all over the world. And people were saying, give me your recipe for hummus even. (laughs) I'll never see you again. If you give me a recipe, it'll be something to remember you by. 
Uh, so they became actually tokens of remembrance yes. and not yeah. way more than just how to yeah. make hummus. Yeah, they were they were hugely. Um, yes, they were full of emotional baggage for me and they meant so much. Um, but I also realized then that the Jewish community had been a mosaic of families from all over the Ottoman lands and around the Mediterranean, sorry. Um, the Jewish community had been a mosaic of families from all over the old Ottoman lands and around the Mediterranean. They had come to Egypt when Egypt became the great merchant hub of the Middle East when the Suez Canal was built in the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century. And they all had clung onto their recipes and they continued to cook that way. And so that's why I didn't write an Egyptian cookbook because we were from all over those lands. What were, so this was, Yes, I was going to ask you about that. In, in this iteration of Jewish civilization in Egypt, where were most of the people from? Were there Was it literally everywhere? Or were there sort of constant, because your family was originally yes. Syrian? It was a particular sort of areas. Uh, but yes, three of my... Uh, uh, three of my grandparents had come from Syria with a whole lot of people from Syria because when Egypt gained from the Suez Canal, Aleppo, which had been on the spice route, the silk route, all the routes from the east, they lost their role. And so the merchants moved. And it was the Ottoman Empire. There were no borders. You could go wherever. Yes, it's hard to remember, right, that passports were not really a thing there. If you if you had the means to move, you, you pretty much moved. could. And... You could do. And yes, and my uh, one of my grandmothers, my maternal grandmother, uh, came from Istanbul, but her family saw themselves as Spanish because they had originated in Spain and they went on speaking Judeo-Spanish. But in the case of my grandmother, she had become a teacher of French in the French Jewish schools called Alliance Israelite Francaise, that became a whole network of French schools around the Middle East, in the Arab countries, in the Ottoman world. Um, it, was it was started in France to get these communities that were getting backwards to become Europeanized and to speak French. That's why we all speak French. But my grandmother, was because she was one of the pupils. They always took young people from those countries, brought them to Paris, educated them at university, a special um, teacher's training, and then sent them back and moved them. So that's how she came to Egypt. And she was like a missionary of France. She made us feel that we were French. So... While I could talk about that history, which is quite fascinating, and for those who uh, don't know about the proliferation of France and North Africa, we'll have to come back to that for a different episode, because I don't want to lose out on that kind of your background on what inspired you 
to record. But do you remember the moment where it sort of transitioned or was it very gradual where you sort of said, oh, I think I want to be a food writer? Yes, I, it was several years uh, where I was working. I had been at art school, but I left art school because we were suddenly refugees. And I got a job at Alitalia Italian Airlines because we spoke many languages, including Italian. And uh, but I was I became obsessed with collecting recipes and also finding out, you know, where were they from? And that's why the history and the culture to me became important. But I never thought that anybody would want a book because in Britain, certainly uh, they were at war with Egypt. They were and there was also the embargo, the oil embargo, Sheikh Yamani. And it seems that all the problems came from the Middle East. And they despised that culture. They despised when they were, they had been colonizers for most of these countries, but they never ate the food of the country. Uh, but I, when I was at an English school in Cairo, and when I invited um, girls and boys around to a birthday, I would tell my mother, please, all you do is scones, jelly, you know, <laughs> crumpets, you know. Don't embarrass you with the meze spread that yeah. people would You know, have. they don't like it. They won't like it. But they didn't like it because they didn't know it. But No, I remember that when my uh, great aunt, who was born and bred New Yorker of 100% Jewish ancestry, and she'd been to Israel, and she had a fantastic time. And I said, oh, did you enjoy the food? And she said, oh, not at all. It was terrible. Because she was totally unfamiliar to her. But it was terrible at one time. (laughs) No, this this was when it was better. This was like the 90s. Oh, no, it's fantastic. (laughs) It wasn't wasn't terrible. (laughs) It was just terrible for her. But it was, yes. And so, but also when um, uh, I met people and I, uh, writing about food as such was very unconsidered, not considered at all. Uh, It wasn't something hot or it wasn't fashionable. Yeah, let's put it in context year-wise, because we talk about that a lot with Julia being part of a movement that actually established food writing as a legitimate thing. And were you, you were collecting these recipes before Mastering the Art were published in the late 50s. Yes. Is that right? Yes. And so, uh, but when I was telling friends and people that I knew, I'm collecting recipes, they were surprised why aren't you painting? <laughs> and then, yeah, when I said Middle Eastern recipes, people would say, is it going to be eyeballs and testicles? <laughs> and I realized that the image that people had in Britain of Middle Eastern food was the kind of, or the, the kind of images that travelers in the 19th century brought back about... Um, a, a baby lamb sitting on a mountain of rice in a sea of fat. And, you know, that is what they had a disgust for it. And so I never thought anybody would want to publish. But but then I, I became obsessed. It means I went on for years collecting recipes and going to the British Library 
uh, to find out. I went there to ask, are there any Arab recipes for my parents, for us? There wasn't a single one. The only one, uh, there were several, but they were 13th century. Yeah, so they were ancient. Not yeah. And so I started, I got everything I could find of the 13th century, and I started cooking 13th century recipes and inviting my friends. It was just sort of my enthusiasm, my excitement. I was so fascinated, but nobody else was. And so I, uh, that's why when I eventually wrote a book, I started writing stories and the history explaining, you know, there's a big culture behind there. It isn't just food from nowhere. That doesn't mean anything. I wanted to explain. But it was, I think, when uh, Elizabeth David, uh, I, my first cookbook that I bought was her Mediterranean cookbook. And I had, she had a few Egyptian recipes because she lived in Egypt during the war. And she had melocheya, a soup that the Egyptians adore, but everybody else hates. And I just thought, I can't believe, I've never seen a recipe for melocheya. One of my aunts gave me a recipe for melocheya. But how could an English cookbook, uh, could I find melocheya? And then somewhere, I don't know where, she wrote, this is the tip of the iceberg. Somebody must do something. Uh, and so I just thought, it's got to be me. <laughs> wow. And well, I, no, I think that's a great articulation of how you put this food on the map. And we're going to fast forward massively because there's a lot that yeah. happened in between. Yeah. But but I think that does relate to what I wanted to ask you about, that it, it shows the contrast because now I feel like Mediterranean and Middle Eastern food is, is very much in fashion, if not celebrated. Yeah. But it's become... Uh, shall I say Yeah, that? yeah, please. Yes. Now, it's amazing how it's become modern British food. I think, you know, I go to restaurants. I went to Devon, a restaurant. I was told there's young, adventurous chefs who are uh, inventive and cutting edge. And we went there. I went there with my children. And, you know, we ordered lots of things. And I can say every single thing they made could have come from one of my books. Well, and do you think, <laughs> I mentioned we just recently had um, Ottolenghi on the podcast, and I know he he's given a, a dedication in your book and really um, credits you with influencing his uh, career and his cooking, and that they've talked about the Ottolenghi effect. And do you feel like that is a result of the Ottolenghi effect, that you were sort of the first stone bridge? Yeah, I think it is because of Ottolenghi. But I did notice um, really um, the interest in my foods as well. But it took a time, took a long time, because at first people didn't know what to do with this. Uh, the book uh, was published and then the publishers stopped publishing anything and just did school books within a few months it was a mistake <laughs> but the paperback was a penguin paperback and that really became popular with very young people 
students who traveled and they started actually tasting those foods. And how much later, so just so the audience has yeah. some context, so the, the, yeah. the book of Middle Eastern food that came out in 1968 and kind of in the yeah. early 70s, how much later was the paperback? Yes. Well, yeah. Okay. So it was around the same time. Yeah. So we're talking about the early 70s. Yes. But yes, I think I, um, I should say when, sorry, uh, when um, it is really when my Mediterranean book came out. And I'm just, I wrote down when it came out. Yeah, it's as late as, as 1987. I did know that people were using my books at home because I, I knew, because it was in a big way. And it sold, it was a bestseller, it never stopped. Until now, it's never stopped selling. Um, and people now, you know, um, what was it, uh, David Miliband, I met him and he said, well, we ate everything out of your book. We didn't know anything else. And I do meet people of a younger generation um, who say their mothers cooked and now people say their grandmother cooked everything from. So it was home cooking. But the restaurant trade hadn't yet come out in the way that people still cooked, uh, professional chefs learned French cuisine. They only wanted to cook French cuisine. And there was that moment when uh, there was the Nouvelle Cuisine. Yeah. And it encouraged chefs here to start doing their own thing. Um. And there was a whole group of chefs um, who... Um, who um, did their own thing. So once start chef, chefs started looking for new flavors and ways to experiment to kind of leave their mark, they started looking beyond the shores? They started looking in cookbooks. Ah. And they started because there was no other way. They weren't going to go to Egypt and ask somebody there, how do you mm. cook? Mm. Or, but so, yes, there was, for instance, the Eagle Pub in Farringdon Road, uh, uh, Alistair Little in Soho and they invited me round for lunch and we're saying we're using your book and I was proud supermarkets started asking me Sainsbury's asked me I never charged unfortunately <laughs> I never thought of charging I was just so happy that they asked because when I was researching and, and looking and writing, I couldn't find any of the things. Only in one shop in Camden Town could I find... The ingredients. Couscous or bulgur or chickpeas even. But something like um, pomegranate, molasses or tahina. Never, never. But, but still, when um, uh, Sainsbury called, they said, what do you think we should stock? And I said, yes, bulgur, couscous, chickpeas, polenta, yes, because I'd been to Italy. I had already, uh, uh, by that time, researched all of Italy, region by region, and I had already started traveling through the Mediterranean, which I can tell you more about. But so, uh, so by then, um, 
And then, yes, Marks and Spencer called me to taste their hummus. And how, how was it? <laughs> and they had two. One was, and uh, but I'm, I could go on and on, which I shouldn't maybe, but they had, they used my stuffed vine leaves and uh, filo pies, tagines, everything out of my book for their cooked dishes. Well, and I think for an American audience, what I was going to, you've pretty much covered it in that, you know, things like hummus in the grocery store are so commonplace today, but, you know, 30 years ago, they were not. And Claudia is not saying it directly, but her book influenced first UK grocery stores, as you were getting at, to start stocking these products that are now standard. And that preceded what is now commonplace in the US. So I want to... Take the time to come back with Claudia. Can and, I oh, tell you about uh, about my experience with America? Go ahead. Uh, not no, knowing, yeah. go for it. Because uh, I had contributed to a Mediterranean cookbook where I did just a part of it. Uh-huh. Other people were asked, you know, to do Greece. I did this and that. And yes, and they said, could you do the introduction? And for the introduction, I did. I only had one page a bit about the history of the Mediterranean, how the influences around the sea because of the empires, because of the trade, because of the, uh, the, um, the exchanges of populations, movements of population. And then they said, sorry, in America, they don't know where the Mediterranean is. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Mm. And so what they did was a chef. And I think, I'm not sure if it was Bocuse or it was at the time of Bocuse, maybe, but a chef, a French chef with a big thing. And and they didn't mention the Mediterranean at all, but the book was called Mediterranean Food. Hmm. But, uh, but in America, I think it took a bit longer for Mediterranean food to become known. Uh, I... Uh, people didn't know what Mediterranean food was. I remember being invited by a woman who had a restaurant and she was a chef called André Abramov. She was from Egypt and she had a cookery school on top of her restaurant. And her restaurant was in a townhouse around 85th Street. So in New York City. And she was called André Méditerranée. And she invited me to come to the 20th anniversary celebration because she said, I teach through your book. I All the recipes we do in the restaurant, which was very generous of her to tell me. <laughs> and, but she said, could you give a talk about my what I've done and Middle Eastern Mediterranean food? And then... Danny Mayer from Union Square was also there speaking. He was her first pupil. Wow. And she told me she had changed her name from André Méditerranée to Crocodile because she said that people kept calling and asking, what is Mediterranean food? They wanted to hear every bit of what Mediterranean food was. And she said, I just spent so much time explaining that I decided to call it Crocodile. And then they never phoned up to ask. 
All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with more from acclaimed food writer, Claudia Roden. This episode is brought to you by Sweetgrass Dairy, a second-generation family-owned creamery in Thomasville, Georgia. Their cows are raised barn-free and graze on fresh grass all year round. You can taste the flavor, the bright South Georgia sunshine, and grass with each bite of Sweetgrass Dairy cheeses. Enjoy a variety of aged, soft-ripened, and fresh cow's milk cheeses in their unique and delicious gift boxes. Celebrate this holiday season with local specialty products that showcase the American South, such as Sweetgrass Dairy's award-winning pimento cheese. There are a number of gift boxes to choose from that include an assortment of unique cheeses accompanied by preserves, crackers, cured meat, and more. These charming and sophisticated gifts are the perfect way to show your gratitude, bring people together, and celebrate this holiday season. Visit sweetgrassdairy.com and use the code JULIA15 for 15% off your next order. That's JULIA15 for 15% off your next order at sweetgrassdairy.com. Welcome back. We're talking to legendary food writer Claudia Roden about her latest cookbook, Claudia Roden's Mediterranean, Treasured Recipes from a Lifetime of Travel. So this new cookbook is very much a distillation of Claudia's life work and from travels and research and all the way to how you cook at home with yourself and your family. And we've talked a lot already about sort of the Mediterranean in public consciousness and how it is defined and not defined. But also one thing we haven't talked about as much, you mentioned being in working for Alitalia, but a lot of your research came from actual travel And this book is meant to kind of connect that lifetime up. And I wanted to ask you, because I think it's it's sort of an endlessly fascinating topic of how food and travel and cooking connect. And so for you, how do you describe how you connect cooking and travel? What's the intersection? Uh, Well, uh, I, uh, uh, I started traveling when my children left home. Um, I had three children and I was, uh, I think, yes, it was 1983. <laughs> uh, I had traveled a lot before, but there was, I'm going. And they left on the same day, two of them to go to New York and one of them to go to university in Manchester. And I decided I'm going uh, to travel around the Mediterranean. And um I'm going to go all the way around the sea and I'll research the food. For me, uh, travel was enthralling. Uh, I loved meeting people, dipping into their worlds. I loved the conviviality around food. Uh, But the Mediterranean had a huge appeal to me. Uh, And it became just the focus of my work forever after that. And yes... I feel that it was who I was. And everywhere I found bits of me. And so it was very much a personal It was very journey. personal. And I was enthralled. And it helped that you spoke, I don't know how many languages. Too. Yeah, <laughs> it had to do with me being able to speak everywhere without an interpreter. 
but who understand who they were, partly because Egypt had been a cosmopolitan country, and or rather the cities were. And I was from Cairo, we used to go to Alexandria a lot, and Alexandria was for me heaven. And it was heaven because of the way of life, the spirit. There was something. First of all, in the street, everybody was speaking different languages, Italian mainly, Greek mainly, and French, <laughs> and Arabic, of course. And But there was uh, something about the way of life that was free and joyful, possibly because of the sea. And I found bits of Alexandria in, let me see, in Barcelona, in Marseille, in Tangiers, in... Um, uh, Salonica, <laughs> everywhere that I went to a seaport, there was... Well, joy. right, because they were all part of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And well, it was rather that the sea, the sea, and because of, of what the, the Mediterranean, about its history. First of all, of course, it's, it's the geography, it's the climate, and the effects of the sea. But also because the history was shared. Uh, it was an incestuous history. There was the Roman Empire all over, everywhere was the Roman Empire. Yes. And right, for those who don't know, Alexandria was an important po port in yes, the Roman Empire. It was, and everywhere was. And they have left, they put, they brought, they got every country that was their empire to grow wheat. They got them to all grow grapes. They got them, yes, uh, and olives, because they wanted the oil for the empire. They wanted the grain to go all over. So there was that. But there is, apart from the things they grow, there was something of culture that stays. Then there was all several empires, but even before the empires, the Phoenicians started supposedly in Lebanon. And you find Phoenician um, uh, staging posts all the way to Spain. And even in Spain, they see the Phoenicians brought the, the, the fish baked in salt. In Italy, the fish baked in salt. Yes, it was the Phoenician. <laughs> so they. So you liked almost this forensic aspect of yeah. trying to discover... Yeah. where things originated, how they were similar, or how they were yeah. You know, uh, yeah. evolved or altered in good ways, but then kept those roots. Yes. I think for me, on the one hand, the thrill of finding uh, déjà vu from one side of the Mediterranean to the other. I was like, uh, oh, there's soup. Oh, you know, recognizing, recognizing flavors, recognizing combinations of ingredients. Of course, they also all had the same ingredients, same vegetables, the same pulses, the same grains, the same nuts. Uh, that it was, they had the same fish because it was the sea. And also they didn't have beef because they, in the way of meat, because they didn't have grazing land. In the north, it was uh, uh, because it was mountainous. In the south, it's because it was desert or something. And, uh, but they had sheep and they had goats. And also they had 
poetry the same. You can see it in in the um, in the tombs of the Egyptian ancient Egyptians. The same poetry is from then are still around, wow. but also the quails that were talked about in the in the Bible in the Exodus, the quails that fell in and they still fall in Alexandria, but they also fall all along the Mediterranean because they migrate, and everybody has a way of catching them when they fall. In Egypt, they put nets and they fall. They pick them up and cook them <laughs> right away. But so, yes, there is all that. But for me, the real excitement is the differences because every country has their own cuisine. But sometimes in one country, there, every city has their own cuisine. And, and there are so many surprises and these are the exciting things. There are also the differences between town and country because where cities have rice, the countryside has bulgur. Mm. Uh, there are those differences. And every village sometimes, villages have a special dish or a special way. They're proud of something. And yes, there is where you find a similar dish in many countries. Well, if it has cheese, the Italians will have mozzarella or, or um, parmesan or ricotta, whereas the French would put gruyere or goat's cheese. The Turks and the Egyptians and the Lebanese and the Cypriots, they would have feta cheese and halloumi. And so it might be the same vegetables or the same pulses or the same grain, and the cheese will, will be different. In the north, uh, northern Mediterranean, it is herbs mainly. In the south, and the East, it's spices and aromatics. It's all the spices, but they're all different. You know, where in Turkey they have cinnamon and allspice with their meat. In Egypt, it will be cumin and coriander. You see, you can just by tasting the spice or smelling the cooking in the kitchen, you can know, are you in Egypt? Are you in Turkey? Are you in Morocco? In Morocco, they have ginger and there are the, the, and yes, pomegranate syrup is in Lebanon, in Turkey. In Morocco, yes, they have orange blossom water. Mm. In Turkey, it's rose water. Mm. So even the flower waters, there are differences. And for me, this thing of discovering what, um, what is different. Uh, also, for instance, the alcohol, you know, it in it would be in Sicily. It would be um, uh, what was the the wine, the sweet wine of of Marsala. It would be Marsala. In Spain, it would be a sweet sherry, or it would be some the rum from Cuba mm. that came to. Uh, and yes, in France, it would be cognac. And you see, for me, this thing. Uh, it's to tell you that although uh, when I researched, I wanted to research exactly faithfully what I found. And I was only researching home cooking. Mm. Because in those days, at the very beginning when I started, even in 83, 
the grand restaurants of Italy, of Spain, of everywhere, Morocco, Egypt, they have served only French cuisine. Wow. And so I'm struck by part of your process was very interpersonal. Yeah. You were talking to people. Yeah. And so the recipes that you were then gathering on these travels, they were from home cooks primarily? Only home cooks. And, and so you just was... wormed your way into people's houses to try their food? Is that? Yes. 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 <laughs> and, uh, and later, I did go a lot to restaurants. I also went to restaurants in Italy because I couldn't eat at people's homes every day. <laughs> and I spent a long time researching Italy. And uh, so I did go to restaurants a lot. And, and certainly in Spain, I was there when uh, there was the Nuova... Uh, now I missed... <laughs> I confuse Italian. Nuova Cucina in Italy and... Um, I don't know what it's Nova called in Nova Cocina, Spain. Cocina oh, okay. in Spain. Okay. And it was which all is before the young... El Bulli and the current. No, it was at the time of El Bulli. Oh, it was the same. Because it... I was there in Spain, doing Spain in a big way, going to all the regions, and it was the time of El Bulli when he first started, the beginning of. He was there. Yeah, yeah. But before he was maybe world famous. No, when... he was. He already. He was, was already world okay. famous, but all the chefs want to be world famous like him, <laughs> and I went to catering schools. Even in um, the Basque country, they were teaching French cuisine. But they said all of their students wanted to do, to use, um, uh, what do you call, the technology. Oh, the modern, oh, the They wanted to do modern, yeah. uh, modernistic equipment. They wanted to be like... El Bulli, like um, Ferran Adria, and they wanted to be famous and rich. And uh, they said, okay, you can go to a stage in one of these restaurants after you've been and studied French cuisine. And so, because French cuisine was what catering schools taught. And so when I went, I did go to Mugaris. I did go, I did get to know uh, Ferran, Adria. And I did go to a lot of places where they were doing Nouvelle Cuisine of Spain. And it was funny in a way, because I learned a lot from them, how to improve on cooking, how to produce on technique. But I did go, and very often I was invited. I couldn't afford to go all the time, or even once, maybe. <laughs> but uh, I would go to a place where they told me they deconstructed a dish of their mother. And then I would eat it, and it was wonderful. And I then would say, how would your mother cook it? <laughs> Put it back and together. I, and then I took out my pen and started <laughs> writing. They weren't all that pleased. So let's bring this to this new book, which, as I said, is really kind of a distillation of all this work you've done, both in your books and in your travels and all your writing. And so maybe you could just take us through, for those who know your older books and the other work you've written on Mediterranean food, how do you describe the dishes 
that are in this book and what would readers kind of expect and would it be similar or would would you think people will find it maybe radically different than than prior uh yes i think yes in my uh well in my previous books yes i was passing on what fascinated me traditional recipes that reflected the home cooking of regions around the sea and i put them in a cultural and historical background and i saw it as my role to record this cuisine as exactly as possible because they were not known they were not known even in italy the other regions people didn't want to know <laughs> and so they only cooked the food of their region and yes and so now med med is about how i cook today mm. for friends and family the way we like to eat today now the book is the result of 5 years of regular little dinners around my kitchen table here and there are remembered dishes to find those that give the greatest pleasure because when i got to 80 i realized i can't do what i used to do i can't drive on the mountain and i can't carry my suitcase so what do i love most of all i love having friends around i love my family coming for dinner and i love cooking and what we're going to do now is to have regular dinners that i invite people and say we're trying recipes to find the ones that give us the most pleasure and so i did it in a very leisurely way just saying i didn't want an age, uh, till my age i don't want to publish because i want to do just for myself the pleasure of having people around and choosing dishes and yes and i felt free to simplify to emphasize flavors to bring out the essence of a dish and to make it more alluring whilst keeping its character so it isn't exact some of the recipes are um are updated versions of old ones slightly updated or more updated and i didn't want to repeat myself and i wanted to offer something new i really wanted to please my friends i wanted to surprise them and enthrall them so i thought this is what i'm about now this is what i'm doing and yes i did have a lot new because i did the mediterranean books you know the first one it was in 1983 when the book came out and so it was earlier when i started traveling or no it's it must have come out after that and uh so i keep on traveling in two weeks i'm going to turkey to istanbul oh, my lovely. first trip because i'm getting an award from the federation of turkish cooks congratulations that's because wonderful. i've been i i went there um 40 years ago and i traveled all around and i got to know the people who were working in res- researching recipes in villages 
from home to home. They're still my best friends, you see. But I'm, uh, but so I'm going now and I find, you know, before the pandemic, I had just been to Italy and I had just been to Cadiz and yeah, people there have changed. Hmm. People there have also evolved. And also I've collected new recipes everywhere because I go when there's a conference, when there's a festival, when people get together and we in Genoa, I've been there several times since I first wrote about. And so, yes, I wanted to bring this in. Well, I think it is just a lovely book. And I was struck by the irony of the the dedication from Ottolenghi, who is famous for the maybe the negative side of the Ottolenghi effect are these recipe lists that are this ingredient list that are super long and you have to go to all these specialty stores. And one of the things I was struck by this collection of of if you will, your favorites distilled from all over the Mediterranean. So it's not one, it's not even Middle Eastern food, it's not Italian food, it's that whole region we've been talking about. But a lot of the recipes, they're very straightforward, they're not that complicated. They A lot of them don't have more than four or five ingredients. And in that way, to me, it felt incredibly approachable, exciting, and very modern. Was that something you intended? Yes, because I have become modern, (laughs) mainly because I've got grandchildren in their 20s and 30s who are very modern, and they come here all the time. They always did. And and yes, uh, they tell me, why don't you put... Uh, harissa there. No, there's no harissa in, in Lebanon. I'm still keeping at least... There's some boundaries you feel yes. you have to retain. <laughs> yes. And they say, yes, how, put tahina in in this Morocco. No, there's no tahina in Morocco. <laughs> there's no... But so, but they also are constantly experimenting. And during the pandemic, yes, they all became my testers, mm. every one of them, because all my children uh, were working from home or studying from home. Nobody went out at all. And all they wanted to do was cook. And I gave everybody recipes, but also to relatives, like in Bordeaux. I have somebody there, my super tester was there, mm. who would write to me in French. You know, she could read my recipe. But, but, but so, yes... I um, have remained modern. Also, I am a great admirer of Jota Motolenghi, of Honey and Co., of uh, Jacob Kennedy, in you know, of all Morrow, of uh, of uh, Jose Pizarro, who is writing about Spanish food. I've gone and done things with him. He has done a day of my recipes in his restaurant and I went to talk as his guest. You see, we do a lot of things together. But I think for me, Yotam was the big, big change that happened. He, because of his particular way of putting things together, of really bringing the best out, um, uh, he has a flair. He has a magic, magic touch. And I remember when my grandson went, was the first one to go to his restaurant, and he couldn't believe 
because he came back and he said, you know, it's what we we eat here. And the thing is, he has made out of home cooking, because all Middle Eastern restaurants before were had a, a set menu. They would never change. It was meze and kebab. And it could be Iranian and Turkish and all. It was their mezes, always the same mezes, always the same kebabs. And yes, now, now Yotam and all the chefs in Israel are doing this now. They, this is what they tell me, where they came and tell me how they've used my book. Or I know, I love that full, full circle nature of you starting this idea of really documenting, particularly yeah. Middle Eastern home cooking and dispelling these myths. And then Yotam being influenced and inspired by the work, your body of work, and him kind of opening up yeah. this thing and returning it to you to then modernize what you've been doing. Yeah, that's right. And because he has used home cooking and turned it into fine dining. It can, some of it is fine dining, which had never been done before in any Middle Eastern country because people didn't go out to eat. They went out for people at home, at at home, and they would have a kebab on their thing. They never expected to have home cooking made into a restaurant uh, menu. And he created what could be said a Middle Eastern nouvelle cuisine and a Mediterranean nouvelle cuisine. Uh, so, but then there was all these in the Mediterranean who've done nouvelle cuisine uh, now from France and in Italy some and in, but uh, I think he is the person who has made it famous and he's making me famous. <laughs> All right. After the break, we're going to hear Claudia's Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Claudia, what's your Julia moment? Well, I got to know Julia through our editor, Judith Jones. I met her several times in New York and at awards ceremony, once at Oxford, where she came to the Symposium of Food and Cookery. Uh, It was always a joy to be in her company. I remember in a taxi where I was just with her and she gave the address to the driver and without looking back, he screamed, Julia! by her voice and really I felt she inspired immediate affection with me for her warmth, her sense of fun and I'm sure she must have experienced that with everyone but I did have a special moment is when I visited her at her home in Cambridge. 
I was on a book tour and she was preparing to go on a picnic with friends from the Schlesinger Library for the History of Women in America. And she invited me to join. So she took me straight to the kitchen where she had made a pork terrine flavored with thyme and allspice. And she had put in quite a bit of cognac for the picnic. <laughs> and I could even smell the cognac. And we had a bit of cognac before we went and we were picked up and she brought a rug along and we sat on the grass and I, I forget which where we were, but we had so much fun. And I felt I love this woman. Oh, that's such a lovely memory. And I, I love and so appropriate that you remember exactly what the meal was. Yeah. No, it's what she brought because everybody brought something else. Oh, I see. So there, were, there, were, there was other food as well. Oh, yes. It was a picnic with a lot of people. So that was her yes. contribution and then there were other dishes. But you remember her specific yeah, contribution. because I was going with her <laughs> and I was there and, you know, she had this yeah, terrine. It, it prepared. And did you leave from her kitchen in Cambridge? Did you meet her there and then you were picked up from? No, we, we went, uh, we were picked up from her kitchen. So you saw her putting her, her yeah. pork terrine? Uh, she took it with her. And right. yeah, so she was, you know, she was such a... Uh, I also uh, admired her in different occasions when I met her at events where I could see she had so many very young fans who wanted to be chefs, who wanted to be writers, and they worshipped her, I thought. But she did not want to be worshipped. And the way she quickly turned it on to them, asked them what they were doing, she didn't want to talk about herself. How yes, it was it was always very refreshing to to hear and think about, especially in the age of Instagram. Of, of, <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Claudia. Well, for me, it's a great, great pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Now, Claudia, I was just mentioning Instagram. Claudia keeps her communication to traditional methods. So, if you want to learn more, you're going to have to buy her books. And the newest is Claudia Roden's Mediterranean treasured recipes from a lifetime of travel. It was originally published by Ebury in the UK. The American edition is out now from 10 Speed Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. As a reminder to keep up with the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram, Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click 